uh, project, and the next week's session we'll focus on uh, the Syria-Lebanon side of things and what we might hope to do going forward in FFC or um, partnering and so on. Uh, we've received support from our New Beginnings funds uh, and from our uh, Faith Jones funds and from many individuals in the foundation. Um, and we hope to have this as kind of a, a discussion, so uh, keep it very informal. And, and some of this you may have heard a million times, we hope not, but uh, some of it will probably be very new. This all started back in 2015, actually, with the, the Mission Commission. We were meeting here to discuss uh, the distributing of our mission funds, and um, half of our committee was absent. And then we were locked out of the library. And so the few of us were there, went over to the child care center, and we ended up talking about what we were all seeing on the news with this crisis of humanity um, pouring out of Syria into towards Europe. Uh, so we ended up discussing how can we possibly, as a church, respond to what is a critical, the most crisis, the biggest crisis since maybe World War II, some people say. So uh, with that, Jane might bring us up to how we linked up with this. I mean, you don't just say, okay, we'll take a refugee family, you know. <laughs> you have to work with special organizations. So Jane, why don't you fill us in on that? Well, uh, Progressive Christians United, that's something you know about, um, set up a program one afternoon over at the Laverne Church, uh, the Laverne Church of the Brethren, with IRIS, one of these refugee resettlement uh, agencies, to talk about how you go about sponsoring refugees. And we had, uh, what, four of us were there, I think, from our church. And we met there also a couple of representatives from the First Presbyterian Church in Pomona. And I'm sure many of you know that that First Presbyterian Church in Pomona is a very tiny congregation with a very big heart and a very big plant uh, that dates from the days when it was a big congregation, but they are deeply engaged in reaching out into the community, serving the community, and they wanted to get involved. But they said, you know, we're a very small group, but I don't know whether we really could manage this on our own. And so, Lenore um, and I and Karen were speculating a bit about how we might collaborate. Uh, I think the next thing we knew, uh, we heard from uh, First Church Pomona that we were going to have a refugee alive very shortly. <laughs> we had been told at this meeting with Iris that it would be a year, maybe more, before any refugees would come through because this extreme vetting process was so slow. And we were also given the understanding that communities like ours that are high cost, uh, are not very good places to settle refugees. Uh, there are not many low-skilled jobs in this area and everything is expensive. Uh, but of course the Pomona Church is in a very different situation. So that's how we got linked up with Pomona First Church and suddenly they had a family arrive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> suddenly, that's right. <laughs> So John, how do we all go about uh, getting ready for this family and so on? It was literally about uh, 10 days or so advance notice that we got this family was coming. And we had just been meeting, you know, sort of having these nice meetings with the first periods do so well uh, that we didn't really 
know what to do first, and we, we had an idea from Iris that typically a family comes and, and you put them up in a hotel for a couple nights until you can find them an apartment, and then you take them to Social Security and, and LA County Welfare and all that kind of stuff. And we said, okay, well, the first thing that happened is Lenore and, and a few others met them at LAX, a very small welcoming committee. And fortunately, some of those who were welcoming them. <laughs> that was our first problem. How do you say it in Arabic? Well, Eric kept nailing me how you say it in Arabic, but when I copied it, it kept changing. <laughs> and you know, Microsoft Word makes, makes auto corrections. kind of like going from Texas to Boston. <laughs> Disparity in the language. But anyway, um, they decided they didn't want to stay in the hotel we had already reserved for them out here in Pomona. They instead stayed with family members who had a small apartment. Now we have 10 people staying in a two-bedroom apartment. Okay. And then, uh, and then we, you know, we did take them to uh, Social Security office and uh, uh, public social services the next day, and one of the other men and I spent uh, about 12 hours uh, with the family doing those tasks and chores. Fortunately, our, uh, our good friends at uh, Pomona First uh, were able to organize a schedule for all of those of us who were involved at the time, and there were about a dozen of us, as I recall, uh, initially, to, uh, to help the family take care of their needs. We got kids registered in school. Uh, we, we registered them with, um, uh, we didn't register them, but we took them to uh, healthcare, their initial healthcare screens with LA County. Um, we, we, started, we began the process of finding an apartment, which actually did not become available for another six weeks or so uh, after they arrived. Uh, the church again opened their doors widely uh, and allow the family to stay at the church. And if you've ever been to that church, you know it's one of those great old buildings. There is one of those great old buildings that has a gymnasium and all these rooms around on the floors above. And they made those dormitories or what became the home for, for the family over the next six weeks or so when we finally got them into uh, an apartment. Well, we had to go help them shop for food find out where they could get the food that they uh, required. Uh, and, and so, uh, and, and the final, uh, probably the biggest challenge was the transportation. Uh, Sarah, one, one, of the, uh, one of our group from Pomona First, made up a, uh, a matrix that allowed <clears throat> for somebody to volunteer every day to transport the three children who were in school to school and back. Two of, them, uh, two of the kids are in high school. One is at uh, Mountain View, right across the street in second grade. Uh, and so somebody was responsible every day of the week to either take the kids to school, bring them home, and take the, uh, the adults to ESL classes at uh, Claremont Adult School. So all these logistical matters, we, we sort of learned about on the fly and, and we just sort of tried to take control of it as, as quickly as we could. I 
to interrupt you, John just mentions it, but taking the family for their medical evaluation, <laughs> which he did, I don't, I don't know how many times, is way down in Glendora, Glendale, Glendale. So that, you know, you can picture the traffic. It's all, that's not just a little commitment. I don't know how many trips you and Brenda made down there, but. <laughs> and, and the other thing is we, as you know, uh, none of us, well, except Mary, yeah. on the committee, but the, none of us at that time who were in, uh, actively involved spoke Arabic. What we did find out, resourceful people that we are, <laughs> is on your cell phone, there's something called Google Translate. <laughs> and so if you go from English to Arabic, you can say, Abdul, when is your next medical appointment? And it comes up and says, it's not going to do it. <laughs> That's me. Well, when is your next yeah. medical appointment? Can he read it? He reads it? Or does it say that? I can't hear it. But anyway, it, it not only reads out here, but uh, there's a voice in there that will speak. Uh, and I, I used Abdul, who's the father. Uh, unfortunately, he's uh, functionally illiterate. And he could not even read what was on the phone, so I could use that for him as long as the voice was activated, okay, and the rest of them, you know, could read fine. But these were some of the challenges that we faced, and, and from a logistical standpoint, I think we, we pretty much, uh, we covered what we needed to cover. And it was thanks, uh, of course, in large part, to all the volunteers who just jumped in and helped. People were, were willing to give their time, to spend the days that uh, they needed to do transportation, uh, to go over to the house to visit um, Rusty Beef, one of the uh, volunteers who's at uh, Pomona First, spent a lot of time uh, not only at the at the apartment eventually when we moved them in, but with the landlord uh, who actually lived right down below the family, and that was a good. And a not so good thing. In some ways. <laughs> the family had to kind of learn a different schedule. Uh, they were used to uh, eating their dinner about nine or ten o'clock at night, and then having their nice after dinner celebration and having friends over, and sometimes at midnight or after, uh, it was not going so well from the landlord's perspective. So, so Rusty had to do a lot of negotiation there with the family. Through all this. Uh, we found that uh, we were not only assisting the family and getting settled and trying to inform them of local customs and traditions and how they could perhaps better uh, get settled into the community, uh, where, by the way, they found uh, some comfort with other Syrian families and Iraqi families who had uh, arrived here previously and from the mosque they got some support from the mosque. But what we found is that we, we not only learned a lot ourselves about uh, some of these uh, local agencies and, and the organizations, uh, the uh, services that are available to them, but we began making some very strong personal bonds with the family. And again, there are the mother, father, the adult son, Amir, who's about 22, I believe, uh, the two uh, daughters who are fifth, uh, 15, 14, I think, in high school, 
young son, seven years old, at the elementary school. And we've become good friends uh, with all of them. And some of us have spent lots of time over there doing work on So that's been a rich, rich part of this experience, as far as I'm concerned. Mary, you want to add anything to that? Well, I go there pretty regularly now. Yes, I do. And uh, the first thing I knew about it when Russell came, called me and he wanted some translation because we wanted to, he wanted to go and uh, rent oh, the apartment. apartment. Yes. So <laughs> we had the trouble communicating with them and uh, again with the landlord too. So I went there and I, that was the first time I met them. And uh, we went to the bank also to open the bank's account there. And they were, I have to say, the bank was very, very good. They even waived their fees uh, when they were doing the whole transaction. And they were very welcoming. So, um, and uh, this is how I got to know them. And then when they wanted people to help them learn the English language, they called me and I volunteered to do that. I was a little bit late because I fell and broke my pelvis first. And then I had my uh, uh, family coming in at Christmas time. So I started later on. Uh, I met them, one, I went, went months before and I, met the father and the mother and the girls and the boy and the little boy but uh, Amir was not there, the older son and um, uh, the father was a little bit not very cooperative I don't think he was very uh, either he didn't want a woman to teach him or <laughs> or he was just you know not that much interested but uh, at the moment Mesa the mother is doing extremely well She's working hard. She's going to Montsac, um, I'm not sure how many times a week, for the English program. And she's trying very hard to understand, you know, to know a lot of the words and a lot of the... Um, she asks, actually, for the names of the libraries, the post office, and this and that. So we kind of make lists of the things that she wants uh, to... And she's learning to read and to write and doing very well. Um, the father and the son are already working in a restaurant, not full-time, but I guess when they need them, they call them. It's a pizza place in Glendora. Uh, the girls are doing very well in school. Uh, their English is improving. Um, the little boy seems to be a bundle of activity. <laughs> but I really enjoy, when I go there, the girls come over and Sometimes they sit down and try to listen and see, and, and and also they help me because I sometimes forget some of the words in Arabic. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes they help me to translate for her some of the things that we are saying and reading and working on. Mm -hmm. And she is just a delight, the whole family. I've been enjoying being around them. I look forward to seeing them on Mondays, and uh, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. And Jim has been involved with transportation, as John described, and had the great uh, experience of moving them into their new apartment, <laughs> renting the truck, I think, was it? Yeah, we, uh, we had a good time. I, I, when I think about that, I think about the crowdsourcing of it. I met people from First Promotion that had been so active that I didn't know, and uh, others like um, uh, Alejandro and Thomas Randall's helped provide strong back so John and I weren't lifting some of this really heavy furniture over our heads up this stairwell. And so it was, it was a good time there. Uh, Dee paid for the truck for, you know, and different things. And, uh, but also for some of the medical appointments, I just want to emphasize that Brenda has been doing 
amazing Brenda Hill has just been doing amazing work with them about all the medical stuff. I went to one of the Glendale, John did a lot of this too, uh, but the Glendale visit was an all-day thing to get six of them through that process. And then uh, I've been going with Amer to um, have his follow-up medical work with his primary care physician and learn about Google Translate. Uh, found out Hebrew doesn't help you all with Arabic. <laughs> Sympathetic. I mean, I just I immediately picked up that Abdul and Amir were kind of out of the loop. What the women were doing was one thing, but they were, and they were kind of more gravitating towards their male friends from the family and yes. others. Uh, but I'm sympathetic with them because I was thinking about Amir in particular, 22 year old who's probably missed a lot of educational opportunities from his being in camps and so forth, and uh, the embarrassment of that, the struggle to to cope with the new setting and the uh, having. The men will know what I'm talking about with a prostate exam from a woman physician uh, as a young Syrian Muslim man, you know, uh, in front of me and a nurse as well. Uh, just, you know, I thought to myself that that would be a, a rude awakening for me. <laughs> so, um, I, I, you know, we've been going through a lot, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a tribute to them. And, and yet, the need are continuing sympathy for a lot of these challenges, you know, with better head. Yeah. You bring up a very important point. Brenda, who is, has a flu today, is that her son? She actually hasn't been on our CPC committee, but she has been a key person on our joint committee with Pomona First and has organized all the medical appointments and much of the transportation, and uh, this just wouldn't have happened nearly so smoothly without Brenda. Um, I might mention that one other partner in this process was the Pilgrim Place Furniture and Miscellaneous Operation. <laughs> <laughs> has furnished homes for, I think, three or four Syrian refugee families now. True. Uh, may I add something to um, Mesa told me, you know, because they're not the first family. I think his brother is already here, and they have some relatives over here, and uh, they came before them. And they are extremely grateful for all the things. She said none of them had the same support that this family has had from our churches. So they are very, very grateful for all the help that has been given to them and about for all the drivers and the translators and the, all the services, they are extremely grateful. And they said they, you know, that it has been much, much easier for them than it had been for the other families that came before. So they are very grateful. Now one thing I think is good to focus on, uh, because we hear it so much in the news today, is extreme vetting. How we need to have extreme vetting to keep our country secure. And you probably have a little this is from our IRIS, uh, our, our IRIS uh, refugee agency, the SPRAD, and this information Brenda took, pulled together from, uh, I think it was a video she said, um, and did you want to show this little video of John? Uh, actually, yeah, there, there are actually two different uh, they're similar, but they're two different websites. So maybe we should just talk about this one on the back. It might be a little easier to look at the paper you have. Um, <clears throat> the vetting process 
can take a long time. There have been uh, there have been a lot of articles in, in the newspaper and news about people, refugees who have gone through this process. And of course, the first thing uh, you have to understand is that this applies to refugees. And refugees and immigrants are two different class of people. A refugee is somebody who has been determined uh, that their safety is in jeopardy if they return to their home, their home country or their home uh, in their country. Uh, and, and that's usually because of uh, their race, their religion, uh, or, or something about who they are, or obviously uh, war conditions uh, that exist in their country. So uh, a place like Syria, it's quite apparent obvious, if you will, that uh, people fleeing that country are in jeopardy of, of being harmed or killed in war. Um, so a refugee um, is first reviewed by the UN High Commission on Refugees. Um, there are also other agencies working around the world, and uh, uh, an example would be uh, IRC, if you know IRC, International Rescue Committee which is a nonprofit organization worldwide that works with refugees. Uh, and they can refer to the, this, uh, the uh, UN uh, people who uh, are eligible for refugee status and for uh, being, uh, for, for immigrating to another country. Uh, and then, I, I don't want to read all the stuff, you can read it over, but, um, the, the, uh, the Kanjo family particularly was actually referred by uh, another agency, it's my understanding, to UNHCR. They, they were not specifically thinking that they would seek refugee status to come to the United States. Uh, when they fled their home in Homs, and by the way, we saw some very poignant photos last week of the home in Homs that was occupied by not only the Abdul Kanjo family, uh, but others in their family, their, their relatives who, and it, and it looks kind of like a, an apartment building with three stories and then there are, uh, you know, three or four different units. Uh, and the whole place was bombed out. Uh, Mesa told us that they were living on the third floor when the bombing began. Uh, so they, they somehow escaped the danger, and when the bombing was over, they moved down to the bottom and lived in this bombed out building on the, on the first floor of the basement uh, for some time after that. Uh, and most of their family was able to flee before you know, being killed. Uh, but this today is, is their home, and that's, they, they show pictures of that. It's very, uh, she frankly broke up when she was showing that. Uh, so anyway, from Homs, they decided they had to get out of there, of course, and they moved to Damascus, uh, where they spent uh, some time, uh, perhaps a year or so, I don't recall how long Damascus with, with uh, relatives there. And you understand that people have relatives. Uh, these big extended families are, are quite large. In, in a place like Syria. So a cousin or a, a second cousin or an aunt or somebody who lived in Damascus took them in for a while until they finally fled to Jordan. 
I ended up uh, living in Jordan for a couple of years uh, with another relative who had also fled to Jordan. And then uh, at some time in Jordan, they began this process uh, of getting into the, uh, uh, the, the United Nations system. Perfect. Also, what, how long was it from the time the bombing at homes to the time they started the process in Jordan? Four years. Four years Four years. Four years from the from the actual bombing. From the actual bombing yeah. to the they lived three years at Amman actually. So it's almost four years. And then they had to start the then vetting start process. After four years. But, but the vet, yeah, the vetting process took a year and a half, I think, or mm -hmm. two years. Somewhere between 18 months and two years. So it's been about six years, six, seven years since they were uh, that's, long and long. Uh, Probably not quite that long. Uh, it was 2011 that the, that the war of evil started. So it's probably been maybe close to that. So that, that's a good point, Bill, because that tells you how long they've been out of their home, out of their sort of, quote, normal lifestyle. Kids in school, Abdul working, uh, having their social circles and all that kind of stuff. So that's been a period of upheaval that they have endured until last year when they finally came to the U.S. And now and why the 22-year-old is... Yes. Has lost a lot of education. Yeah, and as well as the other kids. Yeah. <laughs> um, you can see uh, by this chart how many how many uh, agencies uh, of the U.S. federal government are involved in vetting a family. Um, all of the. Uh, you know, the ones you, you know about, the FBI, the, the CIA, the Department of Homeland Security, uh, National Counterterrorism Center, etc., etc., and the list goes on. The State Department, all this is under the auspices, by the way, of our State Department. Um, and so at the bottom, it tells you that the whole process takes two to six years. And that, uh, from the articles that I've read in the papers, anecdotal elements, they've all taken from two to six years, and, and more likely four to six years uh, for people to actually become vetted. Uh, now, we hear today about extreme vetting, and I don't know what that means. Um, I, uh, what little I know about the, the whole process, vetting is simply uh, you know, scrutinizing or investigating very closely people. In this case, investigating uh, families. Uh, so, so the interview process, and, and you can call it interview or you can call it interrogation. Uh, those are actually two different terms uh, if you get into police work. But uh, the fact is that it often becomes interrogative uh, in nature uh, because. Uh, especially with some people who are looked upon with great suspicion, uh, and whoever those people may be, whether they're, you know, 21-year-olds or, or 45-year-old uh, brothers or something, um, that the interrogation process or the interview process is designed to to make the interviewer 
certain, if you will, as certain as a person can be, that this person is not a threat, does not pose a threat to the country where that person is uh, being relocated to. Um, and that's just what takes so much time, uh, is interviewing, re-interviewing, re-interviewing. Uh, they're doing record checks, uh, and I know that uh, record checks are useful only in the fact that um, uh, some people have records in, in international uh, and force law enforcement systems. Uh, most don't. So um, the, the vetting process is, is, in my mind, fairly extreme as it stands right now. Uh, I don't know how we can do any better um, than what we're doing, but that's, that's an example. And, and just kind of look at that and think, uh, if you were to go through that yourself, the word I say most is wait. Wait. <laughs> yeah, wait. There's a lot of wait there. John. Nora, go ahead. Based on your description and following the flowchart, I'm intrigued if you have to go and get documents. Would that be from that third floor apartment that was completely bombed out? Yeah. I mean, like, I can't find documents at my house. Well, Nora, you'd be in a class by yourself. No, but you're absolutely right. Asking for documents is uh, we're, we were, uh, I was uh, pleasantly surprised that they have passports, original passports from Syria when they came here. That looked to me very legitimate and were accepted, of course, by our immigration service. And they were used for the purpose of identification here. Uh, but what other documents they had, I, I don't know. I don't think they had very many. Do you know what other documents they're asking for? Uh, no. Okay. No, I don't. I mean, I suppose they would ask for documents from local policing agencies or, or you know, law enforcement agencies inside Syria and Jordan and, you know, from the UN if they had any records. I mean, obviously they would be reviewing whatever records they had of their time spent in the uh, refugee camps and. Jordan and etc. It, it, it's an extreme process. The New York Times articles recently that gave narratives of two different refugees mentioned the Somali man, yeah. and he begins by saying, "We have no records in our culture. I tell you, I have no records to present to you." So the hurdles for that child, for him, of course, then would be for someone from And that's exactly why it comes down to this interrogation process, because what the, the, the design of it is to to ask somebody uh, a same, the same question over and over, and waiting for a different answer from them. And then the suspicion arises, and then you ask more questions, and then you go from there. So that's, yeah. But it's interesting that domestic resettlement agencies um, come into play in this process. Uh, do the Presbyterians have anything like the Ecumenic uh, Episcopal, the Virtual Service, Lutheran? Well, are they the only three agencies that? that are like, you know, homing agents or something? That's a good question. The nine, there are nine agencies in the U.S. that contract with the State Department for resettlement of refugees in this country. 
and they are um, the, uh, the Lutheran Immigration Service, Episcopal, uh, the Catholic Church has a service, uh, the Jewish community has a service, um, Church World Service, IRC. The Presbyterian Church does not is not one of those contract organizations. Any Muslim groups in that uh, I don't know if there's a Muslim group. Seems like that would be an easy place for for the Trump administration to kind of put a wrench on everything. Mm -hmm. Just that yeah, I, I don't think, I don't think there areas. is a Muslim organization among those nine. Aren't they all faith-based? Um, yes, well, no. There's, there's one or maybe two that are not. You find, you know, like I'm at an absolute, and then, uh, 
anxious to find work more than it is for them to learn English, for example. Yeah. Although this is one of the things that the government wants them to do, but they want to have some income in order. It's, it's expensive, especially if they can get foreign. So they're much more interested in finding work than, than they are. Yeah. So you have said, uh, you use the phrase extreme betting. Uh, I, I use that term only because somebody else. Uh, <laughs> but but somebody else. Uh, this is the process that's been, has been, and is in place. Yes. To this point, it's not what that person has said. Is we're going to you know do really extreme betting. We don't know what that looks like. Exactly. So that could, we could have a few more. So this all this comes from the US State Department and that this is the current document, the one that's on there. Yeah, the one that's up there is actually from the State Department. This this chart was in the our our resettlement agency, IRIS. This was yeah, in okay. our this is welcome manual that our committee was using uh, to welcome our family. But, oh, good. Here's. Has anybody thought about when you're talking about funding? And I can see a problem bringing a family in is that there's a lot of enthusiasm at the start. And at three months or six months, the need is still there, but the, the, the novelty is worn off, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Has anybody thought about looking at crowdfunding for specific families? So I can answer that. We're, we're doing that. Uh, so I might add, you can say a little bit about yourself. We're, I'm glad you were able to come back. Our committee is sort of backing off because um, we're hoping the family will become more independent. Um, but we aren't the only act in town, and we're hoping Judy has been working with another committee that is um, was preparing to welcome a second family, and maybe you can tell us so a little about we're that. we're kind of at the point where we've been having, we've, since the middle of September, we've been having kind of grassroots meetings. There's about 22 people that show up more or less consistently and are interested, and we followed like the Presbyterian team like guidelines and we call ourselves Refugee Resettlement Team 2. Team 2! Team 2! You guys didn't even know you were Team 1. So you know like they have a tight team titles. It's like Team 2. So we are in the process of having nice meetings. We were ready to launch our crowdfunding site, a social media crowdfunding site. And then that EXO order came out, and we were like, oh, what are we going to do? Because the whole thing was, this is going to be a welcome mat process, you know, fairly intense the first three months, and then back off the next six months so that they get independent by 12 months. They don't need any help at all. This is just, you know, a lot of these people don't, they're, they're not coming to jobs, so they don't have a job community to help orient you the way we would if we moved from one state to another. And, they, and if they have families, they're not really strong enough anchors to help them. So we are the family, kind of a welcome mat. But then when that executive order was signed, we're like, whoa, what are we gonna do? And, and I was just crying for a week, so I was like pretty much, but I'm back. And, um, <laughs> so what we decided is we're gonna help the people that are coming. And, and then on Wednesday, Iris contacted us and mm -hmm. said, 
let me back up. So what we've done is we're helping the Kanjin family in Upland that hasn't received a lot of aid. Um, and one person had very poor hearing, and pro bono, we got him to an audiologist, and he now has a hearing aid. And one person in the team saw some people painting like the condos and went up to them and said, hey, this guy's a painter, do you need painters? And the guy was Chinese who did the whole group, and he was like, yeah, we need a painter. So he started, I think, on Thursday. Um, so he got a hearing aid, which improved his life considerably, just right there, and a job. And then I also um, took um, Kadeem, who is an Iraqi, um, down for his DMV test. So he has his license, but he's not, he's not allowed to drive unsupervised because, no, because he doesn't have his license. And he actually taken, don't tell him I told you this, he taken the test twice and had failed the driving test. And so he was really embarrassed. And he was really getting worried too. So I took him down there, and he passed, and then he was like, oh, you're a lucky charm. And he served me tea and cookies and, and all this stuff. And, and like, I was just like, no, it really wasn't me, it was you, but anyway. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I think it's a time to wrap up for today. So we're going to continue our conversation. Can I just add one yes, sentence? Yes, please, yes. We just heard we have an Afghan coming next week from Iris, an Afghan male. We figure he's about here. We don't have, we don't get many details. He has a family that's in Rancho Cucamonga, but he's going to be needed to resettle next week. He's about 30 years old. We believe he's, the kind of refugee visa he has leads us to believe that he was a translator for the military. Mm -hmm. And that's how he's coming in. And our team was kind of like, you know, we kind of want, because we're women, I think it was kind of like, we want like the mummies and babies. And so 30-year-old <laughs> Afghan, you know, translator for the military wasn't quite as like, whoop, but we, we, whatever they send us, we're taking, not just hearings. So whoever needs help is what we're doing. So now we're at that point where, ooh, we just can't have meetings. We have to, so that's what's happening to us. Great. Thank you. And uh, we'll continue to talk uh, this conversation in next week. So please come again. And I hope to see you at the sanctuary. Um, before we end, um, maybe I didn't have a proper chance to introduce my friend uh, who's here right now. Uh, so uh, my good friend, uh, Dr. Yoon Jung Han uh, from Korea. She's been working about 20 years in, uh, in Korea as a journalist. Uh, in one of the major newspaper company, and her son, Ki uh, Ki Han. Yes. Uh, thank you for coming today. Thank you. All right. I'll see you.